Let's pray and ask God to make his word effectual in our hearts and minds today. Father, we come to this time in our gathering corporately to the preaching of the word. Father, this is the time that in our tradition we have set aside the most concentrated study of the word of God. This is the time, our Father, when our hearts and minds are to be focused that we might understand your word to us and might make application in our own lives. And our Father, we recognize as we gather at this time that this is a spiritual endeavor, that your spirit using his word is the one who changes and that the preacher can do nothing on his own, that we cannot change ourselves, but that we need you to change us. And so, Father, as we begin, we call out to you and beseech you. We pray on behalf of those in our midst this morning who do not know Christ, that in our next our together, Father, that they would come to know the Savior. And for those of us who do know him, our Father, we need to know him better. We need to bring our lives in humble submission to his word. And so do your good work in us, each of us, applying the truth where it is needed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can open your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. We're continuing our series here in Ephesians chapter 5, and in particular verses 6 through 14. 6 through 14. We've entitled this session, this section, The Puritan Dilemma, How to Live in the World But Not Be of the World. And beloved, you know, when we became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, everything changed for us, of course. But one of the foundational changes is that we were launched into the most intense struggle. That we, from that moment forward, began a struggle that will remain with us until the Lord comes to either rescue his church and take us all home corporately, or he individually calls us to himself through death. And that is the struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. It is with us all the time, in every moment. It never lets up. It is brutal. It is hand-to-hand combat. And it would be so discouraging, so defeating, because we often slip and fall in the fight, don't we? We don't live out the intentions, the good intentions of our heart so many times. And yet we can take confidence in the reality that the victory has been won for us through Jesus Christ. He has conquered sin and death. His resurrection is proof of that reality. And the God of the universe has committed himself 
for all of us who are united with Christ by faith to, to bring us to maturity, to conform us to the image of Christ. We've been predestined to that reality, and God will bring it about. Salvation is of the Lord. God saves, and he will save us. But we remain in the fight. It's a struggle every day. The struggle to live in this world, submitting to the world's structures, and yet rejecting the values of this world that lives in open rebellion to God. This is essentially the Puritan dilemma. How to be in the world but not of the world. And the dilemma is nowhere more difficult, I think, than in the realm of our sexuality. We have been created by God as sexual beings. Male and female, he created them. And so there, there is this reality about our sexuality, that, that there is a passion associated with it that is very, very powerful. And for the unsaved, they are, they are ruled by that passion, and it, and it drives them. But for you and I, as children of the living God, we are, we are called to rule over that passion, to bring it into submission to the Lordship of Christ to express it in holiness as God determines holiness. The power to do it is the power of the gospel. There is no other. You can't just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't, you can't just, you know, kind of suck it up and say, I'm going to do this. The power is the power of the gospel. And is the power of the gospel not lived out in isolation, but the power of the gospel lived out in Christian community? In other words, I need you to help me in my fight, and you need me, and we need each other. And Paul is addressing the church here at Ephesus, and he is addressing it as a, as a body gathered. And in this section, 6 to 14, he he is unlocking the reality of this, this terrible fight, this difficult fight. And he's unlocking the reality of that it is the gospel lived out in Christian community that is the only source of victory. Let me read the text, beginning in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what things, Paul? Because of the things just expressed in verses 3 through 5, in immorality and impurity and, and filthiness and coarse jesting and, and so forth. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We began this study together here a few weeks ago. We observed that verses 6 through 14 could be gathered up really under three guiding principles. Three guiding principles that that we need to keep in mind as we navigate through our own version of the Puritan dilemma. We said these guiding principles are found in verse, first in verse 6 through 10, verses 6 through 10, and it was the principle that we need to grow up theologically. We need to grow up theologically, verses 6 through 10. We also observed in verses 11 through 13 the next guiding principle, which is we need to speak up truthfully. We need to speak up truthfully. And then finally in verse 14, so that people might wake up spiritually. These guiding principles will enable us to navigate a world that is crazy, just crazy when it comes to its, its thirst for those things that stand opposed to God. We've been looking at this first principle here that we need to grow up theologically and Breaking that down further in verses 6 through 10, we said there are foundational truths here to what it means to grow up theologically, and and I could find three of them here that I wanted to to share with you, and we've been looking at them, and and, um, we're only going to get through one more. Well, we're going to finish this section this morning. That's it. Sorry. Those of you who get my notes, you probably already knew that, so uh, you've got next week's sermon too. But... um, we're just going to have, we're just, we, there's too much here. There's just too much here. So just review, review. We need to grow up theologically. The, the first foundational principle that, that kind of underlies this, this reality of, of first foundational truth that underlies this, this principle of growing up theologically is in verses 6 to 7, and it was that sexual sin is serious. Right? Let no one deceive you because the wrath of God comes and the sons of disobedience, because of this, this kind of sin, this, this rejection of God's creation, this rejection of his, of his purpose for men and women is, is so significant that it draws forth the wrath of God. And don't be fooled about that. Don't be deceived about that reality. God's wrath, we observed, was an, is an object lesson that, that Paul is not giving it here, he's not talking about the wrath of God in order to, to like scare a Christian as somehow, you know, hey, if you don't shape up, the wrath of God is going to come on you. If you are a child of God this morning, the wrath of God has been consumed on your behalf by Jesus Christ, his son. You do not need fear of the wrath of God. However, however, understanding what draws forth the wrath of God should produce a sober-mindedness a recognition that this is important stuff. This is a no fooling around kind of topic. There's not a lot of room here for for negotiating the borders. Sin is 
Sexual sin in particular, very, very serious. Very serious. Therefore, verse 7, do not be partakers with them. Secondly, and we looked last week at the second foundational truth here, and that is that conversion is radically transformational here in verse 8. Right? Do not be partakers with them. Verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Paul sets forth this, this contrast between darkness and light, and, and you know, there's not a little bit light and a little bit darkness. There's darkness and there's light. And, and he says that not that you lived in the darkness, but you were darkness. In other words, before Jesus Christ, darkness is what characterized us. Alienation from God. Everything that was not God was us. But now, right, verse 8 but now something radical has happened. You are light in the Lord. In other words, in union with Jesus Christ, you are now light. You have gone from darkness to light. Contrast couldn't be more sharp, more radical. Salvation did not just clean us up. It's not just a fresh coat of paint. It's not just a, an extreme makeover. It's death and life. It's darkness and light. It's that radical. That, that drastic. Notice again here the the gospel, really, here in verse 8. This is what you were. This is now what you are. So, now live out that reality, right? The indicative. You were formerly darkness. You are now light in the Lord. Therefore, this is what you must do. In other words, you've got to live out your family identity. You have, you have been in Adam. You're now in Christ. Live as if you're in Christ. Powerful stuff. It's powerful stuff. The law is for the unbeliever. Don't do this or you will surely die. The gospel and the, and the reality of the change has been brought about by Christ is the power of the, un, uh, of the believer. It's what moves us. It's what motivates us. It empowers us. It's what continues to change us. And that conversion here, spoken of in verse 8, brings about a change at every level, right? Darkness to light, and it brings about a change at every level, and not the least of which is in terms of how we view the world. And that takes us to our third foundational truth, and that is this in verses 9 and 10, that discernment is not optional. Discernment is not optional. And you might think, how does that fit in this? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that's what I want to try to show you. Is that this radical, transformational change that has been brought about through our union with Jesus Christ has changed everything for us, including how we view the world. In other words, we can't continue to, to view the world in the old way. 
We must now begin to live out the reality of our new life in Christ, which calls for a biblical discernment through every aspect of life. You can't just coast. You you can't just view redemption as a fire insurance policy purchased and put away in a strong box in case you ever might need it someday and then just get on with life. No, everything's got to change. Everything's got to change. How you view the world in every situation has to change. Now, it all can't change overnight, and it all doesn't change overnight. It's a process of growth and maturity in Christ. But it's a process that's not optional. It's not optional. So let's take a look at how Paul builds the argument here in, in verses 9 and 10. First thing just to notice here in verse 9, and your Bible probably spells it out this way. There's a parenthesis around verse 9, right? For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Number, uh, verse 9 is parenthetical. It, it's a parenthetical thought. Really, the end of verse 8, walk as children of light, verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the main thought. But there's a parenthetical here in verse 9 that is important. In this parenthetical, in verse 9, Paul is is introducing the, the ethical qualities of a child of light, right? Walk as a child of light. Well, What does that mean? Well, there are certain ethical qualities that belong to a child of light, and and Paul's just going to quickly lay them out there in verse 9. And then he's going to go on and and basically say, in light of that, you need to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, we need to grow in discernment. As one writer observes in, in just commenting on this section, he He says as follows, that just as children share their parents' nature, so the fruit of a plant shares the nature of the plant that produced it. Okay, so far so good, right? Children share their parents' nature, and and, uh, a plant that produces fruit, the fruit shares the nature of the plant that produced it. Basic observations of, of of the world and how it is. And then he goes on and he says, if Paul's readers are light, and we are, and are children of light, and we are, then we need to bring forth fruit appropriate to the light. And that's the argument of verse 9. You're a child of light. You need to bring forth fruit appropriate to the light. Of course, when you talk about fruit in the Christian life, we immediately begin to think about Galatians 5, right? Galatians 5, 22, 23, for the fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is, this is what, the, the, if you can use the analogy, the, the Spirit as a plant produces a, a fruit in the life of the believer. Well, here Paul is going to not focus on those characteristics per se, but he's going to pull forward three and talk about them. Here in verse 9. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. In other words, as a child of light, you and I, our lives, need to bear forth these ethical qualities of goodness, righteousness, and truth. It's not exhaustive. He's not saying that that's it. That's all there is. But these are important. These are foundational. 
So what are they? What's goodness? Goodness, the, the idea here is, um, is benevolence or generosity, doing good to other people. So it's that other-oriented approach to life and, and that we would do good to others. How radical that is, right? Conversion is radical. Before Christ, we're all about doing good to who? Yeah, me, right. I was kidding with somebody before the service this morning, and I said, you know, I'm really glad to be here because it's all about me. And we laughed, but so often, that is, <laughs> I mean, that's the state of the unredeemed. So Paul says here, as a, as a child of light, walk as a child of light. Well, what does a child of light walk like? Well, first off, a child of light walks in such a way that they're, they're doing good to others. They're serving other people. Radical transformation. Then they're called to righteousness. In other words, upright behavior. Emulating God who is the standard of righteousness. And third, truth. In other words, and these are all behavioral terms here, I think, and, and the idea here is, is basically honest and right living, living with integrity. So verse 9 is, is, a, is a broad form of ethical guidance. Righteous, gen, uh, goodness, righteousness, truth. And, and a, this broad form of, of ethical guidance undergirds his statement here in verse 10 to, to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, to, to, to live out this new life in Christ, right? Walk as children of light. What does that look like, Paul? Well, it looks like trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, understanding that your orientation has changed and it is now about goodness, righteousness, and truth. Our life is now about serving others, about doing what's right, about living with honesty and integrity in the situations of life. So he says, verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. This, this, this word, learn, uh, translated here, you know, this expression, trying to learn, uh, uh, dokimazo is the, is the Greek term here. And, and it has the idea of... Um, uh, putting something to the test or, or scrutinizing something or, or examining something for the, for the purpose of judging it, estimating it, and then approving it. It's, it's about discernment. It's about taking the time to, to bore in and to think about life, the decisions of life. Paul uses the same word, dokimanzo, over in Romans 12. I won't turn you down, just, I think we've actually got it on the screen for you, where Romans 12, 2, right? He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, there's your word, dokimanzo, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, to prove the, the will of God here, it, it means to examine and determine what the will of God is in the context there of Romans 12. Here in Ephesians 5, Paul is, is telling the Ephesian believers they've got to walk as children of light. And, you, and as a child of light, you need to be trying or testing or examining or, or scrutinizing all that's going on around you to determine what is pleasing to the Lord. Lord. 
By the way, Christianity is not for the mentally lazy. Because we're called to think hard. We're called to discipline our minds. Not to just skate through life. Now, this requirement here to, to scrutinize or to, or to test is not a, not a reference to God's moral will. That's been revealed to us and not subject to, to you know, any kind of uncertainty at all. Things like, thou shalt not lie, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. We don't need to examine and, and, and test and scrutinize and try to figure out, okay, does he really mean that? No, he means that. What he's calling on the, the Ephesian believers to do and by application you and I to do as a children of God this morning is to scrutinize and examine all the, the myriad of ethical decisions that face a child of God living in a very dark world. We need to exercise critical judgment in a very complicated world so that we can do what's pleasing to the Lord. You can't opt out on this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I can say this too strongly. This is not like, oh, this is Christianity for the overachiever. I, you know, I just want to, I want to be the kickback Christian. There are, there are no kickback Christians. And there are no overachiever Christians. This is a, this is a life we've been called to. Why? Because we have been radically transformed. Radically transformed. We could say it this way. Because we have been radically transformed in Christ, we are now required to grow in biblical wisdom. If you want to boil it down, that's what you can boil it down to. We're required to grow in biblical wisdom. Wisdom for the Christian is not an option. It's not, a, it's not an advanced graduate degree. It's basic. We must grow in wisdom. And it doesn't require an advanced graduate degree to grow in wisdom. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. That's such an amazing statement. Because the the earth is the Lord's, and, and all who dwell in it, then he gets to determine how it should operate. So, so to grow in understanding what is pleasing to the Lord means we need to grow in understanding how God has put the world together and what he expects for those that are his children, how it's supposed to operate. That means God's truth touches every single aspect of life. By the way, this is, you know, if, if it's true what they say that, um, that men's minds are you know, like a series of cubby holes where they stick things in, and women's minds are more like a bowl of spaghetti in which everything is together, uh, if that's true, I don't, I don't really know that's true, but if that were true, then, it, then uh, ladies, uh, you should be able to identify with this super easy. Because every single, every single aspect of your life comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and, and we need to have wisdom and discernment. And men, you know what? 
got to get over this thing that I've got my Sunday life and I've got my Monday life and I've got my Saturday life and I can box it off and file it away and live one way one time and another way another time. All right. Here's what I want to do with you, just to sort of drive this home and we'll just finish here this morning, finish out this section. We've got to grow up theologically. Let's just, let's just talk through some of the realms of life Common areas where Christian discernment is essential, required. Why? So that we don't unreflectively imitate a darkened and sin-saturated world. So let me just kind of go through a list with you. Mostly, I'm not going to resolve anything this morning. All I'm going to do is raise questions, and I hope that somewhere along the way that I raise a question that causes you to go, mm, I need to look at that. So i got a big, long list. Hopefully, I'm an equal opportunity offender, and I can find something here <laughs> that you need to come back to and say, wow, in light of goodness, righteousness, and truth, in light of living for someone, you know, living for others rather than me, in light of, of, of living in an upright way, in light of, of having a life of honesty and integrity, I, I need to come back to this and think about it some more. All right, so here they are. First category. Dating, engagement, and marriage. Dating, engagement, and marriage. Does the Bible have anything to say about this? Can you date any way you want? Is engagement a cultural thing that, that the Bible has nothing to say about? And is marriage a, you know, a convention of men that we can define however we like? So here, let me give you a little ammunition as you begin on this. i just suggest a couple things to you. As far as the New Testament goes, as best that I can understand it, the relationship between adult men and women can only be in fall into one of two categories. I'm talking about within the church, within the community of believers. You are either a brother and sister in the Lord, or you are a husband and wife and one flesh. That's it. Brother and sister, one flesh. To say that you're a brother and sister, by the way, is to say something about who one should be dating. Okay? In other words, I have to be a brother, I have to be a sister. But how we put together discernment of these things, I think, is, is uh, well-informed by those categories. Just think about that. How about male-female relationships at work? Okay. Did the Bible ever know anything about men and women working in close proximity to one another? Did it foresee the modern economy in which so many of us are involved? Yes. In principle. So, how does a Christian conduct themselves in an environment in which they are working in close proximity and close contact with a person of the opposite sex to whom they are not married? Intimacy is a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. How about authorities? 
Ladies, if you find yourself in the workplace and you have a husband who's in authority and you have a male boss who's in authority and they give you a conflicting command, how does that work out? We need discernment. How about the realm of child training? I told you I'm going to be an equal opportunity offender here. I'm just getting started, by the way. These are the easy ones. How about child training? The Bible calls us to shepherd a child's heart. The world calls us to either indulge them or, or you know, basically just keep them quiet and out of the way. Focus on the externals. How do, how do we discern the difference in a child between foolishness and childishness? Because the consequences are, should be dramatically different. Here's another one. How about educational choices? Where am I going to go to school? Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40 that when a disciple is fully mature, he is just like his teacher. In other words, education is a discipleship reality. It takes discernment to know, who do I want discipling me? How about modesty? How about modesty? What is it? What is modesty? And how should it be practiced? And I'll be back to that one in a couple of weeks. I'm coming back to that one. How about entertainment choices? Are there any biblical standards? How much is too much? I'm on a roll. I'm going to come back to that one, too. I'm going to come back to that one, too, because I think there's a lot of worldliness that has crept into the church. Oh, here's another one for you. How about gambling? Lottery tickets, bingo nights, and raffle tickets. How's that? Did I get everyone? <laughs> Are there any limits to these things? Is it just a personal choice? Is there any kind of universal standards here? Use of alcohol? Drink? Non-drink? How do you decide? Here's one we hadn't foreseen 10 years ago. Medical marijuana. Medical marijuana. Is it legal? Is it moral? How do you decide? What if it just becomes like alcohol in that it is just completely legalized around the whole country, which, by the way, I think is likely to happen in the next couple of years? Is that okay? How do you know? What do we say to a, to a person who says, hey, it's legal? How do we respond? How about birth control and family planning? 
Does the Bible address this, or is this an entirely private matter between me and my doctor? When you're doing premarital counseling, is there any, any word to bear, been brought to bear on this topic for a young couple? Is the church silent? Does the church have something to say? Does it have universal things to say? How about IVF and reproductive technology? Does God care about that? Probably throw in here human cloning. Does God have anything to say about that? End of life decisions? Is that just a question for the medical community? Just keep them comfortable and let them die? Is that, is that what the Bible would instruct? Is that what it is pleasing to the Lord? How do we know? These are serious questions. Serious questions. Here's a good offender. How about appropriate standards of living? How about an appropriate standard of living? Now I'm really meddling, right? What is, is there such a thing as an appropriate standard of living? And if so, what is it and how would one know? Is it all about, hey, if I can afford it, it's all good? Is there ever a place for Christians to say, my standard of living is capped here? I'm going to give away everything above this. How would one know? I can tell you what the world in which you live tells you. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Oh, I'll finish up with this one. How about the use of debt? The use of debt. Let me ask you a question. Does one generation have the right to indebt the next? Does the Bible say anything about that? Does God care if one generation borrows money and leaves the, the debts to their children and their grandchildren? Is that okay? I can tell you what the world says. Kick the can. What does God say? What should we say? One writer, just reflecting on this, this whole reality, he says, and I quote, the believer is not to prove and discover what suits himself, but what pleases his divine master. He kind of rolls it back in here, verse 10. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Examine, scrutinize, test. Use the word of God, right? This is our inherent source of truth that expresses the mind of God to examine all of these issues, and there's a myriad more. And I think in the pursuit of these things, we, we need the wisdom of Solomon. 
Wouldn't you say? We need the wisdom of Solomon. And I think we also need the patience of Job. In other words, patience with each other. Patience of Job. I think we need the humility of Moses to acknowledge we don't have all the answers here. The humility of Moses. The sensitivity of David, a man after God's own heart. The sensitivity of David. And then the faith of Daniel to do what is right regardless of the consequences. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. May the Spirit of God use his word this morning to motivate you and I to a serious consideration of one or more of these issues. We might develop a, a, a lifestyle, a pattern of going to the Word of God rather than our culture to set our priorities. Let's pray. Our Father, we, in one sense, raised more questions than we answered this morning, and that with an intention that it might drive us back to you, the one who has the answers. Lord, we don't want to be glib with these things. Some of these issues that we, that we just mentioned here in passing are serious, serious issues that face us as a culture, that face us as families, that face us as individuals. And we need, to, we need to have a Christian answer. We need to live in a way that's pleasing to you. We need to live out the reality that we were once darkness, but we are now light. And we can't be taking our cues from the dark, from the sons of disobedience. So, Lord, help us to have courage to first just do the hard work, but secondly, to, to live out the reality of the new life in Christ. Let us feel the weight of the Puritan dilemma. May you guide, direct, and empower us to live a distinctively Christian life in this community here, in this place in this age. For Jesus' sake, amen.